if you've got your Bible, open it up with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 is where we're going to be uh, this morning. Luke chapter 1. And while you're turning there, let me just give you a little update. As you know, we've been this year's uh, focus on the big give. And the big give emphasis this year has been Africa, particularly Burkina Faso in West Africa, and then Zambia, planting churches, building actual physical churches in villages that have no place of worship. Uh, building up our hubs in those communities that will continually train church planters and, of course, spreading the gospel, doing evangelistic outreaches in those regions. And our goal was $925,000. We've already, uh, we're right at 700000 so we're right about 70%, 75% of our goal. And that's before we even got into December. So can we just celebrate that already? Thank you so much. For your uh, generosity, of course, you can give from now to the end of the year. We just encourage you when you pray about giving that you give some to that initiative that will literally see people come to hear the gospel for the very first time. And we're super thrilled about it. All right. Luke chapter 1 is where we're going to be uh, this morning. It's Christmas. And uh, hopefully by now you've already got your Christmas tree up. Everybody got your tree up? So far, uh, maybe got a few gifts underway, you know, uh, maybe by now you've looked at your calendar in December that, wow, okay, can we shoehorn anything else in here because it's packed, right? And, and as great as Christmas is, it brings its own level of stress, right? We call it Christmas stress, you know, where you've got a lot of things going on. In fact, Liz and I used to joke that uh, our one big argument of the year would happen right around this time of year, usually around putting up the Christmas tree, okay? So good, good news is the tree's already up and it was without incident. So I just want to report that to you. Everything's okay at our house. Uh, but it's stressful, right? In fact, I, I saw an article this week and it was called uh, Seven Main Causes for Christmas Stress. And by the way, you could have written this article because we all stress about the same things. But some of it had to do with work, right? You know, just trying to get all the work tagged down before everybody goes off or gets off. And then, of course, decorating for Christmas is stressful. Buying gifts is stressful. You have family stuff that is often uh, stressful. It brings its own stress. Uh, sometimes financially, how are we going to pay for this? Uh, all of these things can become very, very stressful. Are you feeling stressed yet? Feeling a little stressful? Well, here's the deal. Uh, we're going to look at a very familiar story today, one you've heard many times before, I'm sure. But I want to look at it through the lens of, of Mary's secret to experiencing the favor of God in the midst of our stress. Mary's secret, that's what I'm going to give you, Mary's secret to experiencing the favor of God in the stress of life. And then I'm only going to give you the secret, but I'm also going to give you a couple of practical ways to apply this to your life uh, over this Christmas season, okay? So let's look at it together. Luke chapter 1, and uh, we're going to begin at verse 26. Luke 1, 26. And this is the word of God, amen? In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee, called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. 
Now stop right here, just a few thoughts about Mary. Uh, some people ask, well, how old was Mary when all this was taking place? Actually, we don't know, but she was probably very young. Chances are good she was a teenager, somewhere between 14, 16, 18 years of age. It wasn't uncommon for a young girl that age to actually marry, be betrothed uh, in that culture. And so Mary was very, very young. Second thing we know about her is that she was, she was raised in a small town. Right? She was raised in Nazareth. Nazareth was a, just a, a, a dip in the road. All right? It was a one-light town. You know what I'm talking about? It's the kind of town you pull over, get gas, fill up, get a Diet Coke, get some sack, get back on the road, and, and, and head on out there as soon as possible. That was Nazareth. In fact, when Nathaniel, one of the followers of Jesus, was told about Nazareth, Jesus from Nazareth, he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? It was just a know-nothing town. And it was a small, small town. Anybody here grow up in a small town? Hands up if you grew up in a small town. All right. Yeah, I see a lot of small town people. I grew up in a very small town. I grew up in such a small town. My, my town was so small, McDonald's only had one arch. Right? Not too. <laughs> I, I grew up in a, a, such a small town, uh, the zip code was a fraction. That's, uh, that was it. I mean, it was, a, it was a small, small town. Work with me, folks. Work with me here. <laughs> I'm doing the best I can. Right? Oh, my. Anyway, anyway. Uh, so Mary grew up in a very small town. She was also, another thing we learned about her is that she was betrothed. Now, back in those days and in that culture, uh, the whole marrying process was different than ours. Uh, there was a two-step process. The first one was betrothal, where a, a man and a woman would pledge to be married, and that was actually a legal agreement. It was so uh, weighty that to break the pledge required an official divorce. So it was a, it was a very official uh, first part of the marriage process in which they lived separately for a season of time where he prepared to receive a wife. She prepared uh, to be a, a wife and a, and a mother. And so then they would come together in a marriage ceremony and they would consummate their marriage and live together as husband and wife. Well, they were in, she was in this first step process, this betrothal process to a man named Joseph. But another thing we learn about Mary just as you kind of read through the story, is that she had a heart for God. She had a real love for God. She had heard the, she had heard the, the stories of the Lord in the Torah. She had been raised listening to the teaching in the synagogue. She had gone to the temple to worship. But she had a heart for God. I don't know if you've ever been around a teenager that really has a heart for God. But how refreshing it is when you see a teenager just really pressing in to love the Lord and to know God's will for their life. That was Mary. She had a heart for God. And we see that uh, in this encounter she has with this angel. So let's look at it. Pick up at verse 28. And the angel came to her and said, greetings, favored woman. Underline that. Favored woman. The Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor. Underline it there again. Favor with God. Now, it's interesting here. The angel, two times, verse 28 and verse 30, says that she was favored she is favored by God. She was walking in the favor of God. What does that mean? 
to walk in the favor. You know, I hear some people talk about the favor of God, and it always seems to equate everything going good, right? Like, I got a promotion. Woo, God's favor, right? You know, or I, or I, my kids are doing great. God's favor, you know, or I, I, I got a bonus. God's favor, you know, or I, I hit a, I, I got, on the, got on the green, you know, and subpar. God's favor, you know? I mean, everything is, anything good that happens, that's the favor of God. But you can't really have that definition and look at Mary's life because the birth of Jesus wasn't necessarily seen as a good thing, at least not initially. The birth of Jesus was a disruptive thing in Mary's life. Think about how it disrupted her her relationship with her family, her own mom and dad. I mean, here she is betrothed and she turns, she goes out for a visit and she comes back, she's pregnant. I mean, just think of how disrupted that was. Think of how disruptive it was to Joseph who was so taken back and so brokenhearted that he was considering breaking up with her, suffering from her legally, divorcing her. Think of all the, all the disruption in the community. She was, from this point forward, always going to be the woman that, you know, the, the buzz in the little town. You know how quickly that goes around, right? She was the one that was whispered about and talked about every time she went in public. She was the one that got pregnant. How could she do that to Joseph? And so you can't really see the favor of God and everything being great going together. And by the way, that's true when you look at uh, the favor of God all the way through the scriptures. If you, if you just do a little study, I'd just challenge you, give you a little pastor challenge. Just do a little word study on the favor of God sometime this week. And what you'll find is that when you see people with the favor of God on them, it is often meaning they're going through a hard time. (laughs) You know, uh, uh, Noah had the favor of God, and yet he went through a global flood. Abraham had the favor of God, and yet he had to sacrifice his son or put his son on an altar. Uh, uh, Isaac had the favor of God, and yet he had all kinds of conflict in his family. Moses had the favor of God, and yet he had to endure 40 years in the wilderness. So the favor, we gotta, we got to recalibrate our theological understanding of the favor of God. The favor of God doesn't mean everything's smooth for you. So what does it mean? It's a really great question. Uh, the word favor here in verse 30, 28 and verse 30, you might just write this in the margin of your Bible. The word Favor here comes from the Greek word charis, where we get the word grace. It means the grace of God. That Mary was full of grace, meaning that she had received grace in its fullness. It doesn't mean that Mary was the dispenser of grace. Mary didn't dispense the grace of God. She received the grace of God. That's what that means. Mary was receiving the grace of God in her life. You know, when, uh, when you think about this idea of the song of Christmas, if we go with that kind of motif, the song of Christmas, then I want you to think of it this way. The one melody that is repeated throughout the song of Christmas is the tune of God's grace. You know, a lot of people this time of year will go uh, go to a musical. A lot of times people love to go to New York City and go to a musical at Christmas time. You'll go see the Rockettes, you know, and then, and then take in a show. And if you've ever been to a Broadway musical that's telling a story, what you'll notice is that there will be a tune 
that kind of is introduced early in the musical and then it'll go along and then that tune will reappear, you know, and then again, and then the tune will reappear. You see this in all the great musicals. This tune is kind of, it's a phrase, it's a melody that is woven all the way through uh, the whole storyline that kind of, that holds it all together. And if you think of the story arc of of the gospel. If you think from Genesis to Revelation, what is that tune? What is that melody that resurfaces all the way through? Maybe in different tones, maybe in different arrangements, but it's the same tune. It is a tune of the grace of God. That God is gracious and he loves to show his grace to those who need it the most. By the way, isn't that good news? That God is gracious and loves to show his grace to those who need it the most. What is grace? It's just God's favor, God's kindness, God's love for you and for me. And we really see it right here in the message of the angel. Look at verse 31. Angel speaking. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus, and he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. All right, right here is really the essence of the gospel. I want you to think of two words. Right? What you think of the word rescue, and what you think of the word restoration. Right? So circle the name Jesus, and then out in the margin, write the word rescue. When you, when you hear the name Jesus, it immediately invokes this idea of rescue or savior. Why? Because the name Jesus means the Lord saves. That's what the name means. In fact, when the angel appeared to, to Joseph in Matthew uh, chapter 1, he said, he said uh, you were to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus is, first and foremost, our rescuer. Uh, earlier this year, a movie came out called The Sound of Freedom. Some of you watched that movie. And uh, it's, a, it's based on a true story of a man named Tim Ballard. And uh, Tim was a federal agent who was uh, uh, literally putting his life on the line to rescue children from the horrors of sex trafficking. And uh, the show was very gritty, very real, of uh, that evil that still exists among us. But here is a man who is going into putting his life on the line to rescue those who cannot save themselves, who are trapped, who are hopeless and vulnerable. And he rescues them. Now listen, that's the picture. I want that in your mind when you think of Jesus. That he is our rescuer. He is your rescuer. What, is, what does Jesus rescue us from? He rescues us from the penalty of our own sin. See, the Bible tells us our sin has separated us from God. Our sin has put us at odds with God. And the wrath of God is coming on our sin because of our own choices and the things that we have done, rightly so. But here comes Jesus, born in a, in a manger. Here comes Jesus going to the cross. And, and on the cross, he took on your sin and mine. And through his death and resurrection, he provides a way, an open door for us to escape the wrath of God and find the favor of God. He's our rescuer. 
That's why Colossians 1 puts it this way. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. Isn't that good news? Hey, let's do a little testimony time. If Jesus has rescued you, raise up your hand. All right, look at that. Testimony time. Jesus has rescued you and me because of his life, his death, and resurrection. Second word is restoration. Notice he says that he will sit on, his, on the throne of his father, David, and he will rule forever. That all means restoration. Just write in the margin of your Bible, restoration. Draw that idea of throne over to that. Because when Jesus rules, he restores. He's going to restore everything in our broken world. You know, when I was a kid, I remember one time my, my father and I were, I was, I was taking piano. If you can imagine. And, uh, and I, I'm sitting there trying to work on something. And my dad, who's a trained musician, was sitting next to me on the piano bench. And I wasn't getting it. I, I was getting frustrated. He was getting frustrated. And I'm not sure how this happened. I guess just when guys are, get frustrated, this is what we do. We just started wrestling. All right? We just got, oh, we just got to go. And it wasn't angry. It was, just, it was just wrestling. All right? And so we just go off the back end of the piano bench. And now we're rolling around on the ground. And he's pinning me down. And I'm rolling and I'm pinning him down. And we're going back. By the way, this wasn't yesterday. Okay? This was a long time ago. <laughs> And uh, I, I was a kid, right? And so we're wrestling around, and then we, we, we rolled up against a table, a small little coffee table, and on that table was a glass or crystal candy dish. Looked like this one. In fact, I'm actually being triggered right now because that's the one. That's the one. And, and it was like, I can still see it in my mind's eye. We hit the table, it starts to rock. The candy dish is falling off and it's all in slow motion and we're going, no, you know, just like in the movies. And, uh, and, and sure enough, it falls and breaks. And we just stop. And we look at each other like, oh man, we've really done it now. And so we quickly decide, okay, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? We can like, throw it away and maybe she'll not notice but no she wouldn't notice that it wasn't there and so what we're gonna have we we'll fix it and so we we decided to get some glue and we we spent we got we got all the pieces in the kitchen and we're trying to put this thing together and trying to fit it together and it kind of ended up I don't know it just kind of oblong weird shape but it was together and then we set it on the table Thought maybe she, she won't recognize the difference. Of course, I don't know. There's like a homing device when she walks in. Something is not right. There he, what happened to my candy dish? And we're like, oh, we're busted, right? And I, when I think when I remember that, it reminds me that we live in a broken world. Our world is broken. And we all know it. Our marriages are broken. We are broken. Our culture is broken. And try as we can, maybe education will fix it. It's like gluing it together. Maybe, maybe if we get the right policies, you know, they, maybe if we, could, if we could do other things, maybe that could fit it together. But listen, only Jesus can repair what sin has broken. Only Jesus can restore what the enemy has taken from us. And that will happen when King Jesus comes. I love it when we sing King Jesus. It's one of my favorite songs, man. Because it just, that's it. When King Jesus takes his throne, he will restore all things. Uh, Daniel, the prophet, uh, said it best in 
I mean, sorry, Joel, in Joel 2.25, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. Peter talked about it in Pentecost when he said, Jesus will return to restore all things. Jesus talked about it in Revelation 21 when he said, look, 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 I am making all things, what? New. I'm making it new. So that's, that's the gospel. That's the grace of God. That Jesus has come, the one who restores, the one who rescues so let's go back to Mary and the angel, okay? The angel appears to Mary, and uh, her life is not easy. It's certainly not going to be easy. She's very overwhelmed. Some of you are overwhelmed. Some of you are sitting there thinking, I never thought my life would end up this way. Some of you are sitting there still grieving a tremendous loss. Some of you are thinking, man, this Christmas is going to be weird. Some of you are feeling this sense of brokenness in your own life. How did Mary find the grace of God? How did she find the favor of God? Listen to this. Instead of listening to her problems, Mary chose to listen to the melody of God's grace. Instead of listening to her problems, replaying all the things that people have done to her, replaying all the things that have happened, replaying all of her problems, all of her stress, all of her troubles. She chose to listen to the melody of God's grace. She chose to focus in on the grace of God. You know, the, uh, the song Amazing Grace is one of the most recognized songs uh, in history. I mean, just about, it doesn't matter if you grew up in church or not, you're gonna recognize the tune of Amazing Grace. And there's a reason for that. Because Amazing Grace has been recorded more than any other song ever. Uh, recently, an article that I, I read said that uh, Amazing Grace has been recorded 6,600 different times. Can you imagine that? In fact, uh, Jer Jerry Bailey, executive with Broadcast Music in Nashville, said, it may be the most recorded song on the planet and so because we have heard amazing grace so many times that all we need to hear is just a tune and whoop, we know right where that is. Well, the same thing is true not only in the song Amazing Grace, but in the message of grace in the Bible. That when we fixate on the grace of God, we begin to see it everywhere. But if you fixate on your problems and your hurts and your disappointment and your pain, then that's all you'll see. So what are you listening to? Hebrews 3.1 says this. Listen, it's a very short verse, but it's very poignant. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Now, that word fix means my thoughts aren't going to go there on their own. I have to fix them. I have to place them. I have to choose to fix my thoughts on Jesus. When my thoughts want to run to this problem, fixing my thoughts on Jesus, the rescuer and restorer of all things, fix my thoughts on Jesus. That's how I walk in the grace of God, even when the whirlwind is swirling around me. Listen, church family, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Tune your ear to the message of God's grace. Now, let me just give you a couple of practical things just for the next couple of minutes uh, left here. Some practical things. You go, okay, Craig, that sounds great. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. 
You know, all right, what does that mean? How do I do that? You don't understand what I'm walking in right now. Uh, let, me, let me just give you a couple of practical ways to put this into action, okay? Jot this first one down. I'm gonna give you three of them. Jot this first one down. Number one, be open with your questions. Be open with your questions. Look at verse 34. Uh, Mary asked the angel, how can this be since I've not had sexual relations with a man? And the angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. You know, whenever troubles come in our life, the first thing we do is have questions. God, why is this happening? God, what's going to happen? How am I going to get out of this? God, how in the world could you use this? Question, 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 question. They just come automatically in our own mind. And the questions came to Mary's mind. And what I want to show you here is that the angel does not rebuke her for her question. He doesn't say, hey, no questions here. No questions. Just take it. He doesn't do that. He is open. She is open. And listen, when you're going through a very difficult time, you need to be open with your question, not, not holding them in and letting them uh, just churn over and over in your heart and turning into anger and resentment. No, just be open with your questions. Be open to other people, other godly people in your life. This is why we have connect groups, so that we can have people around us speaking truth into our life to keep us from veering off and offending God and sinning against God. Listen, you, you, you got to open up. You got to be open to godly people. Uh, you got to also be open to God. Be open to God. By the way, God's not offended by your questions. He's not worried. He's like, oh, they're asking questions now. What do we do? You know, he's not going to do that. He can take it. You can't read the Psalms without seeing David over and over go, God, what are you doing? God, how am I going to handle this? God, I don't understand. And yet he is open with his questions to God. Maybe if you're really going through it right now, you need to spend extra time in the Word of God. Maybe you need to take some key scriptures and memorize them and say them out loud when the questions come that you can respond with the grace of God. Respond with the Word of God. But you gotta, you got to be open with the questions and the doubts and the struggles that you face. You know, it's interesting here, Mary's open and the angel gives her an answer. What do, you, what do you think? You know, I can't believe it. She actually gets an answer, right? And it wasn't one that she expected. He goes, you're not going to get pregnant the normal way. The Holy Spirit's going to do this. I'm so glad she asked the question. We might not even have had that answer, right? But it was through the question that she gained greater insight. Listen, your questions are not wrong. They're not bad. People come up to me, well, Pastor, I just got a lot of questions. Great. Awesome. Because those questions lead you to answers that open up your heart and mind to understand God better. Just be open with them. Here's the second thing you can do. Look for where God's at work around you. Look at verse 36. Verse 36. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her who was called childless, for nothing is impossible with God. I love this. He goes, hey, hey, you know, even look at Elizabeth. Look at Elizabeth. Who was Elizabeth? We, don't, we know that she was a relative, maybe a cousin of Mary. We're not exactly particularly sure, but obviously related. She was a woman that uh, her whole life longed for a child and never could have one. Longed for a baby and never could have one. I'm sure spent many nights crying herself to sleep. Some of you know what that's like. Some of you know what inf infertility feels like. Some of you have walked through it. Some of you maybe are even now walking through it. Uh, Liz and I experienced this for eight years we asked God for a child. 
Not eight weeks, not eight months, eight years. God, why? God, why? And you know what we learned through that? God knows what he's doing. Duh, right? But we really learned to to embrace the fact that God's timing is perfect. And God knows what he's doing. But why does he bring up Elizabeth now? I mean, what does Elizabeth have to do with Mary having this child that's going to be named Jesus? He's saying, look, God's at work. Look, even, even your, your relative Elizabeth, man, who's like really old, way past, you know, childbearing age, even she's pregnant. God's at work, Mary, around you. You know what? Many times what we need to do is we need to lift up our eyes and see that God's at work around us. Uh, one of the best things you can do here, if you're really going through a hard time, is just remind yourself, God's at work. God's at work. God's at work. How can I do that? Well, one thing you can do is you can list off all the times that God was faithful in your past. How many times has God revealed himself and been at work in your past? It's good to think back on the faithfulness of God. I was just recently with a group of men and, and we would get in a circle and these guys are sharing their story. And every story was different, but every story was the same. In that every story, though the facts and the situations were different, they all said, but God intervened, but God revealed himself, but God moved in a way that got my attention. Listen, if if you're here today, God's been at work in your life. Is that true? And so why not, if you're in the middle of the whirlwind, the disappointment, the discouragement, the stress of it all, just remind yourself of the faithfulness of God. Make a list. That'd be a great thing to do this week. Along with your Christmas list, make a God's faithfulness list and remind yourself of the grace of God. Also look to see where God's at work around you. God's at work in our church. God's at work in your, maybe in your family. God's at work among your friends. God's at work in the world. God is faithful. You can trust him. I love how the angel ends. He says, Mary, nothing's impossible with God. Nothing's impossible. Hey, whatever you're struggling with, nothing's impossible with God. God can't fix my marriage. Nothing is impossible. God can't bring my kid around. Nothing's impossible. God can't heal me. Nothing's impossible. God can't fix this problem. Nothing's impossible with God. So how do I, how do I, Experience the favor of God. It fixed my eyes on Jesus, the rescuer and restorer of all things. And I have to be open with my questions and I have to look and see where God's at work around me. And then here's this last one that's so important. Look at verse 38. Verse 38, last verse. I am the Lord's servant, Mary said. May it be done to me according to your word. Mary doesn't panic. Mary doesn't freak out or spin out. Mary just surrenders. She says, Lord, I want what you want. I want what you want. I want what you want. That's what it means to walk in the favor of God is for you to, maybe even before you roll out of bed, your first conscious thought, Lord, I want what you want today. I surrender to you. Whatever you're doing, wherever you take me, I'm gonna set my eyes on Jesus the rescuer and restorer of my life and my soul. And I want what you want.
You know, it's interesting that that prayer, that surrender of Mary would be echoed 33 years later when her son would find himself on his knees facing a cross. And he would say to his father, Father, I want what you want. As hard as this is, may your grace be on me. May your hand be on me. I want what you want. I surrender to you. Can you say that this morning? God, I really want what you want. 